1: And welcome back to new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. I'm Samantha Long, one of the hosts of the channel. And today we are going to be talking to uh, Aaron Hill Doral about his new book, Corn Crusade, Khrushchev's Farming Revolution and the post in the post-Stalin Soviet Union. So Aaron, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, um, first off, thanks for for the introduction. Um, Yeah, I am an independent scholar, for want of a better term. Um, I teach occasional courses at uh, Curry College in Build, Massachusetts, um, and otherwise do freelance editing, translating, uh, dabble in local politics here in my adopted home state of, of Rhode Island.
1: So what got you interested in the topic of Khrushchev and corn growing?
2: On some basic personal level, uh, it, it comes from growing up in the Midwest. Um, you know, I, I, I lived quote unquote in town, uh, but I was you know probably three hundred yards from the nearest cornfield, so it was always there. And then you know, as I was an undergraduate, um, you know, I, I got interested in Soviet history and started reading about the Khrushchev years. It was always that the corn campaign was mentioned, but but usually as kind of a punchline. It was it was there for for comic relief. Hey, get a load of this! Isn't it weird? Um, but I always noticed it because it was something that kind of spoke to my experience. And then and then when I got to graduate school, you um, know, it took me a couple of years. I wrote my MA on a different topic, and and um, as I turned to to searching for something for my dissertation that would it would be the thing I was going to spend the next five, six, seven years on. Um, this it really jumped out. It it fairly quickly became clear that it was a the, the topic was kind of a goldmine and would allow me to speak to a whole range of um, of really interesting uh, issues about the Khrushchev years.
1: So most historians, like you said, treat it as a sort of a punchline or a chaotic failure, which demonstrates sort of the ridiculousness and fundamental flaws of the Soviet command economy. How is your approach different?
2: Um, In a way it's, um, the key is that that by taking something that worked more or less, you know, in its own kind of problematic terms elsewhere, this idea of corn as part of a broader program of industrial agriculture, um, and that ties into this broader idea of, of the Green Revolution. Um, these are kind of interrelated, uh, but somewhat distinct phenomena. And then seeing how they, you know, worked in the Soviet Union or, or didn't work. Because it's not that, that this was some kind of resounding success and we, we just don't know it. It, it did perform far less well than Khrushchev hoped and expected, um, but that by looking closely at, at how, it, how it worked, um, we can really see how those flaws um, worked on a kind of day-to-day level, getting into the nitty-gritty of, of the functioning of, of the Soviet um, agricultural economy. Um, and and the idea is ultimately that it, it was not ridiculous or entirely work, workable, but was constrained by this you know cumbersome, extremely difficult to reform system. Um, that the system really wasn't a, a command economy per se, because Khrushchev could enact formal policies all he wanted, um, but the actual practices on the ground might change very little or might actually contradict those policies. And yet, by the same token, Khrushchev achieved a fair amount, just just not all that he hoped, You know that, that by 1964, things look quite different than they did 10 years prior at the, you know, at the end of the Stalin era in terms of um, you know the kolkhozes, especially in terms of administration, planning, wages, the crops they were growing, the technology they were using—a um, whole lot. They're they're still not in great shape, but they're certainly uh, better off um, than they were. And and I think this kind of goes to speaks to kind of a bigger problem of how historians and, and scholars more generally have understood the Khrushchev years in that. Um, that idea of, hey, isn't this a, a weird thing that shows the ridiculousness of Khrushchev's policies has then shaped the way we've understood Khrushchev. We have seen them, him as this um, kind of irrational, erratic, idiosyncratic figure, and he certainly had those elements, um, but as historians have really delved into the archives of the past 15 years or so, really seen the, the, the logics behind his policies in in agriculture, in this case, but more
1: well, I'm, I'm in the Stalin period myself with my research, but I have to say there is a lot of, I think, old Cold War baggage about sort of the brokenness or hilariousness or ridiculousness of the Soviet system in general. And this sort of idea of it being, a, you know, a, a top down centralized command economy, even under Stalin, is absolutely not true. I mean, I study collective farms and they give orders and the people in the collective farm are like, nope, we don't think so. We're going to either do something completely different or just ignore you and keep doing what we've always been doing.
2: We're going to tell you we did it and then yeah. do whatever, you know, we decide is best. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's Cold War baggage. You know, I'm, certainly there have been lots of people back to, you know, Sheila Fitzpatrick 20 or 30 years ago saying that so much of the Cold War scholarship kind of grabbed this um, self-image of the party as this kind of um, top-down very ordered and disciplined hierarchy and just kind of flipped it, Um, you know, and said, well, you know, this is is, instead of a positive, it's a negative, without actually sort of taking apart the ways in which it doesn't really describe the way things work.
1: So back on Khrushchev, why was he so dedicated to corn in particular? I mean, that's not a crop that grows particularly well in most of the Soviet Union.
2: Yeah, I think there are there are a couple of things that, that contributed to this. Um one thing is worth saying that this is idiosyncratically Khrushchev. Um, you know, if someone else, if if Malankov or whoever had been in charge of agriculture, they probably would have gone for some kind of industrial farming approach. Um but to concentrate on corn to the degree they did was very much a, a choice by Khrushchev. And part of that is um, global in nature in that you know, he's getting reports from experts about how corn works in the United States um, and increasingly how in the, you know, in the post-war era corn is being increasingly used in, in parts of Europe as well uh, to improve um, you know, agricultural production and productivity and especially to make things like meat and milk cheaper than they would have been before. Um, but then there's also an element of Khrushchev's own uh, personal experience. Uh, you know, he, he writes in his memoirs about having encountered it. You know, as a kid growing up in um, Krasnoyarsk uh, Oblast uh, uh, and other points, but but especially his experience in Ukraine after the war. Um, he does. It was known in Ukraine and and surrounding regions, um, at least back to the 19th century and and probably quite a bit further. Um, but there are, uh, he tells a story on a number of occasions um, of, he interpreted that, that there was a severe crop failure in the works in, in 1949, close on the heels of the famine of 46 and 47. And that one of the ways that they averted it was by going back and planting a bunch of the winter crops that had been killed by Bad weather with corn, and that helped them um, survive, and, and so he kind of credits corn as this um, uh, sort of uh, new thing that can really you know make a difference. Um, so it, it is both his personal experience and these kind of messages that he's getting about the way that corn is is um, you know making a change. Uh, Across the world, especially in the U.S.,
1: what I thought was really interesting is your focus on how corn leads to increased standards of living. Because most people tend to think of corn and his Corn Crusade as like people eating actual corn, like corn on the cob, or maybe um, you know canned corn or something. But that's that's not really the goal, is it?
2: Not not at all. Um, you know, there there are sort of uh, trial programs to encourage. Um, what I kind of call convenience foods. So they start, they buy some machinery, and I think in the UK at one point, and start producing cornflakes. But I did the math at one point, and it worked out to like a half a bowl of cornflakes per person per year, if they had actually produced everything, and this would have been in the early 60s, that they said they were going to, and, and they didn't. And they tried to get people to, you know, they introduced popcorn, for example, but these are tiny minorities, the vast, majority of what they're producing is meant to be fed to livestock to make up for the fact that the Soviet diet, as as it emerges into the post-war period, is, you know, it, the, the, the stereotype is, of course, it, it has everything you want as long as what you want is, you know, potatoes and cabbage, um, and and it add, you know, healthy doses of meat and, and milk products and cheese and all of these kinds of things, and eggs and, and stuff that... Most people had to go to peasant markets to buy, or just simply couldn't afford.
1: And does he borrow this model of basically feedlotting animals from the Americans?
2: Yeah, um, that's the that's the kind of goal or the direction that American farmers are moving at that time, and they, you know, they. He sends experts, and, and eventually, um, in in fifty nine, goes to see for himself how they're doing this, and and that's ultimately the goal. Now, the actual practices often leave quite a bit to be desired, but the goal is is essentially to create something that looks not unlike kind of the the American Corn Belt, um, where you know farmers raise corn, and it is immediately you know you immediately turn it around and turn it into beef and, and pork, and, um, you know, those things are, um, you know, the, the post-war period is a, a, a in the United States is, is a time when um, productivity is rising rapidly, and a lot of that productivity goes into making those foods cheaper and more, um, more affordable for, you know, your average working person. Um, and... They're, they're very aware of this and wanting to try to kind of capture some of that.
1: You also talk about Khrushchev emphasizing corn as a way to compete with American influence on a global scale, particularly in what we would now call either the developing world or the third world. How was this supposed to work?
2: Um, yeah, so corn is, is certainly a component. And again, you I kind of move from in, in, in different ways. Kind of registers. You know, corn is a component of this kind of industrial uh, ideal of industrial agriculture, and and um, the that is coming very much from American sources, which are admittedly transplanted into the Soviet Union at a at a pretty early stage. Um, you know, fairly soon after the revolution, um, and so there, this is sort of a, a, a renewed injection of an idea that is already there, and and basically. Uh, you know looking at the way they understand how agriculture in the us works they're seeing it very much in this kind of framework of um, you know sort of cutthroat capitalism and monopolies and um, you know this idea that uh, the average kind of family farmer is going to be increasingly squeezed out by larger and larger and larger capital, intensive capitalist enterprises. And in a way, they're kind of right. This is the process that, that's occurring. You know, it, it goes back to well before World War II, but, but peaks in things like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit too young to really remember things like farm aid when they were new. But this idea that there's a crisis in the 80s of the family farm in the U.S., mean um, something that's very much part of the same story, and basically what they're doing is trying to take the technologies and practices and kind of graft them onto a collective model of agriculture and then export that to places like India um, to say basically we can provide um, similar rises in productivity, but we will provide you a more egalitarian um, sort of version of agrarian development without, um, you know, kicking large numbers of people out uh, off their land and, and driving them into cities to, to make up the urban poor, and you know, bankrupting anyone who fails to keep up in this kind of um, uh, you know, kind of cutthroat uh, competition model. Um, now, you know, as as I document in, in that chapter chapter two of the book. Um, this never really gets that far, and, and therefore has largely been kind of dismissed from histories of Soviet ideas about development and aid. Um, but there's a, there's a brief period at the end of the 50s and into the early 60s where they, they think they're doing this. They're sponsoring these projects, they're providing um, uh, loans, for example, to a number of countries to... Uh, purchased Soviet equipment and, and sending Soviet engineers to develop irrigation projects and fertilizer, uh, you know, the, the plants that produce fertilizer and all these kinds of um, components of this industrial ideal, but it, it never quite takes off.
1: Well, you know, lots of ideas never really take off. but you can't really say that they're wrong about sort of the the capitalist um, you know crushing of the small farmer. I mean, you you know, looking at Trump's current subsidies that he's having to give to farmers because of his trade war, like 85% is going to large corporations. Right.
2: Um, yeah, this is, this is a process that is absolutely ongoing. We just, I think at this point, we as Americans are so far removed from where our food comes from that most people don't know the difference, unless you're, you know, one of these hippies, and I count myself in this, who you know tries to buy whatever's fair, local, and organic, but don't have. I'm not sitting on a mint, so I can't actually do it all the time. You know, that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> so, how did Khrushchev plan to increase? corn production in the USSR, because this is not a crop that has a lot of cultural resonance outside of Ukraine, and the the country was devastated by the war, didn't come back real quick. The agricultural sector had already been kind of marginal. What was he planning to do to fix it?
2: Yeah. So that is a a big part of one of the major barriers to success, I think, that is um, often Underestimated in that the the country has been through fifty years of tremendous upheaval. You know, you think all the way back to uh, the years surrounding World War One and, and Civil War and and collectivization, and then World War Two. You know, the the core agricultural areas of the country are are depleted of of everything that might make them more productive. Um, and so Khrushchev is. You know, it's, it's a multi-pronged uh, kind of solution to the problem, and corn is part of it, um, but it also is um, predicated on adopting new technologies. And, and by technologies, I mean not only things like new machines and, and just providing more machines, um, but also things like accounting practices and uh, scientific agronomy, which, of course, existed you know, under Stalin, but was uh, pretty light on the ground. Um, You know, new crop breeding, um, you know, on all of these kinds of things. Let's
1: talk about the boogeyman of Stalinist (laughs) (laughs) scientific agrarian crop breeding, which would be Trofim Lesenko, because you do actually address him a little bit in your book. Would you mind explaining to our listeners who exactly he is uh, why he's important and how he factors into the corn crusade
2: yeah so you know i think the story broadly speaking of lisinko is is fairly well documented in the field and i'm you know not trying to totally uh reinvent the wheel on that um you know that that he rose to prominence in the 30s. Um, you know, his ideas have often been described as kind of neo-Lamarckian, this idea of, of that um, plants and animals can inherit acquired characteristics, that they respond and then pass along to their progeny um, the, the, the adaptations based on sort of immediate environmental Conditions. Um, so he claims to transform winter varieties of weed into spring varieties, or actually, I think it's the other way, right? spring varieties of weed into winter varieties by going and, and, and burying the seeds in a snowbank or something. I, I can't remember the exact version of this, but that's basically the idea. Um, and the, the The most important part of this is that whatever the validity of his ideas, which you know were mostly not great, um, he was a consummate political maneuverer and used his ability to tell powerful people Stalin of course, but also Khrushchev in time um, what they wanted to hear um, this idea that, um, rather than having to wait for sort of mutation, random mutations, and and sort of painstakingly develop new crop varieties, um, you could transform things more or less overnight. Um, sounded really good to to you know people who were committed to transforming things overnight. Um, And so he, you know, kind of ruthlessly accumulated power and and destroyed his enemies, um, ruining their careers. Um, In in some cases, they ended up losing their lives. Uh, The the famous case being an opponent of his, Nikolai Vavilov, who was a prominent sort of leader of the scientific community who ended up in in prison and dying in prison uh, toward the end of the 30s, or or maybe it was in 1940. I can't recall the exact date. Um, But essentially, he gets to kind of set, Uh, orthodoxy in biology and crop breeding um, throughout the um, post-war years under Stalin. You know there are these scientific debates that have been documented by a number of scholars like Ethan Pollock and so on, where Stalin helps kind of establish a single kind of orthodox line, which is you know described as Marxist-Leninists and materialist, et cetera, et cetera, and then whoever is opposed as you know bourgeois, reactionary, et cetera, um, and this happens in biology as well. And one of the things that Lysenko rejects is. Um, The form of, you know, the the knowledge of genetics that's required to create um, the most uh, prolific, most advanced kinds of corn hybrids. Um, And so there are researchers in the Soviet Union who have collaborated with, in the the 20s and 30s, who have collaborated with uh, Western, especially American, um, researchers to help develop some of these things. Um, So when this becomes possible in the 1950s, mid-50s, to start doing this research again, they're kind of able to to bring these ideas out from the shadows, and are actually working with, like, genetic material and stuff that they have gotten from the United States back in the 30s, which is kind of fascinating. Um, And ultimately, this is, uh, you know, not the only reason that Lysenko uh, loses his power, but it is the the shift to um, allow these um, advanced hybrids to be the object of research and eventually, you know, a major program to produce them um, is kind of a sign of the times. Um, so, in 1955, Lysenko's already kind of on the on the ropes a little bit. Um, and then these experts um, sent from the Ministry of Agriculture, return from the U.S., and one of the things that they are able to do is go straight to Khrushchev and say, look, you know, the Americans are doing this thing. Uh, we have not done it, you know, parentheses unsaid, because Lysenko won't, has, has blocked it. And we want, we need to be able to do this if we're going to catch up. And he says, okay, and, and gives his um, approval for research and then, in fact, considerable investments in producing these things and getting the cohoses hoses and soft hoses to use them. Um, and so what this means for this, you know, Lysenko and Lysenkoism, if you will, is that um, Khrushchev is often sort of portrayed as someone who defends Lysenko and kind of allows his power to continue, um, in large part because there were times when he did, most famously at the very end of his time in power in 1964, Khrushchev goes on this kind of uh, ranty defense of Lysenko, but the reality is that, that that relationship and Lysenko's power ebbs and flows considerably over the course of the decade, um, so Khrushchev knocks him down a peg uh, on a couple of occasions um, and in particular in the year or so surrounding this adoption of these corn hybrids. Um, So the USSR is then able to kind of rejoin the mainstream, uh, broader kind of global mainstream in in the breeding of these um, corn hybrids.
1: Well, let's talk about the other sort of elephant in the room, which is the continued collaboration with American scientists. um, doesn't that sort of fly in the face of, you know, traditional views of Cold War divisions, of, you know, the Iron Curtain of a world divided, of people not really talking to each other or sharing ideas?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this marks uh, a significant departure, right, We've, we're all familiar with, um, you know, obviously McCarthyism in the U.S., but but on the Soviet side, this idea of the Shina and, and this, uh, you know, the campaigns against... You know the anti-cosmopolitanism, you know, read anti-Semitic campaigns, and all this kind of stuff that that's try to snuff out foreign connections and foreign influence, and um, deeply harm anyone with foreign connections, and that's essentially where this stands. Um, you know, in in, uh, in in 1955, when Khrushchev is trying to really get this corn project off the ground, um, you know, one of the first things they do is, um, you know pack up 10 or 12 experts from the Ministry of Agriculture and ship them off to the U.S. and Canada to figure out what they've been missing for 10 years. Um, And, you know, this is the sort of emergence of uh, the the Soviet relationship with uh, Roswell Garst, who's kind of a well-known name, um, who is sort of, there's a conversation between him and Khrushchev recorded at their first meeting in the fall of 1955, where Garst is sort of, Perplexed at why you know the, the the Soviet experts are coming and treating things as as you know major innovations and real revelations, even though Americans have been publishing about them in freely available publications, journals um, for years. Um, and you know Khrushchev lets off some kind of quip about you know well you're going to give it to us for free, so we thought that's what it was worth. But what it really is is this problem of um, the Cold War freeze in relations and and the idea of um, you know any kind of foreign connections or knowledge that come from comes from a foreign source is suspect and makes anyone advocating for it themselves then suspect um, but this and is so really uh, sort of
1: a blip isn't it um, in sort of a long history of agricultural exchange going all the way back to the Tsarist period right yeah
2: yeah it, it taps into a deeper um, a deeper strain of connection. So yeah, it's it's that um, the, the post-war, you know, the 46 to 53, 54 period is is the outlier. Um, and there's a certain amount of this you know, closing off, you know, in the years of the terror as well in the 30s. But these connections are deep in the 20s. They go back to, um, again, yeah, certainly to the 19th century. There are American travelers who go to the Soviet or to the Russian empire. Sort of trying to learn what they can about what's going on, and, and, and also vice versa. People bringing expert knowledge, um, American companies going and setting up factories to produce machines in the Russian empire, all these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, the, the the closing off is really the, the outlier and the relative openness to new ideas that comes in the mid-50s is more in line with the norm. And, and I think it's quite telling that, um, the renewal of exchanges in a whole range of you know, formal exchanges of ideas and delegations um, emerges from the um, sort of atmosphere around a summit meeting of, of the four powers in Geneva in the summer of, of 55 and um, among the first couple of, of uh, exchanges are uh, around agriculture. It's like agriculture and then a bunch of consumable journalists I think maybe a ballet company fairly quickly, but, you know, agriculture is like top of the list.
1: And so, you know, you you mentioned a lot of these American technologies and methodologies that they take to try and improve corn. You've mentioned, you know, these hybrids, um, increased technology. Are there other things that they take?
2: Yeah. uh, So the hybrids are a big one. Um, You know, a Broader range of machines um, that the Soviet Union didn't have, and and then these experts go to uh, the US in, in the mid fifties and they look around and they you know they've adopted and developed all these things that save labor, um, and and it's really at this point that for the first time they realize that you know sort of the broad sort of use of of labor manual labor in agriculture is not going to work in the long run because they're starting to realize that urbanization and people are sort of fleeing from the farms in search of better livings in cities and in industrial employment and this kind of thing. And so they have to kind of jump on board with this as well. Um, But but as I mentioned before, you know, the idea of technology also encompasses things like, um, you know, Bookkeeping and, and accounting for production costs, which is something that, that Stalin simply had not allowed to be done by the kolkhozes since their establishment. So that by the by fifty three, they, they literally have no no even way to account for what it costs to produce, you know, a, a ton of corn or a ton of pork or whatever it is, um, and they have to actually start reforming all of. The, systems, including the, the Labor Day system, um, to, to make this to possible. Do you explain
1: to our listeners what exactly you mean by Labor Day? Because it's not an actual day, which is confusing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a measure of labor rather than a measure of time. It's, it's um, basically, it's a... In theory, standardized and practiced, extremely subjective measurement of how much labor of um, the member, a member of the kolkhoz, has done in the course of the day, and, and what it means is that um, at the end of the year, you get to add up all the labor days that you've accumulated, and that determines what share of of the sort of uh, collective earnings goes to you. Now, what this really means in, in the Stalin era is that after the Chocos has paid all of its many debts and dues and taxes and, procure, you know, forced procurements and stuff, you're getting, you know, a fractional share of, of the leftovers at the end. Um, and so the, you know, the the, next, the peasant workers, don't, you know, they, they quite rightly see this as, as essentially forced labor. Um, and they are not really enthusiastic about it, and so Khrushchev, and the other thing is that it varies what that is worth, varies from year to year, from chovo's to chovo's, let alone from region to region, and what they realize is that if we're going to um, begin to calculate what something costs and therefore make some determinations about, you know, on this farm or in this region, it's more efficient to produce these things and not those things, they have to be able to standardize that. And so they start moving away from this you know, uh, proportion of a share of the leftovers at the end of the year to a, a more stable wage model um, that pays a kind of basic wage and then allows for some leeway in terms of bonuses um, for anything you, you might produce um, above and beyond the expected. Um,
1: Well that's the, one of the big things about the co system though I guess that maybe not everyone would listening would know is that people don't get paid cash I mean you're talking about these labor days <laughs> Very few of them were paid entirely in cash, even more than half were paid entirely in kind, so in in grain and chickens and in whatever. Potatoes. Yeah, potato, a, lot of, a lot of grain, a lot of potatoes, not actually a lot of chickens. Uh, although, interestingly, I have to say, I do have a lot of collective farm chairmen in Kirov who get in a lot of trouble for distributing stuff. You're killing years of famine, before they pay the government. <laughs> so they do actually they, ignore the government on occasion. Yeah, that um, doesn't
2: surprise me at all.
1: But yeah, um, I mean, this is a problem, is that they have no money um, to buy goods, for, like kerosene or shoes or clothing, or even pay taxes.
2: Right, right. And so one of the things that Khrushchev is is doing in, in parallel with this, um, adoption of these kind of technological fixes that travel under the name of industrial agriculture. Um, And this is what I'm really trying to get at with this idea of rural modernization is that they're trying to increase efficiency to make up for the fact that people are leaving and to kind of break that cycle to help um, inject money into this system so that people can buy the consumer goods they need and pay their taxes in cash and and whatever else, um, and so Khrushchev moves gradually, somewhat piecemeal. At times, much faster than planned. Um, you know the classic sort of problems with implementing policies. Uh, you know we're going to do this over five years, and then everyone is forced to do it in one. You end up with chaos. Um, to move from that system of labor days to a system of cash wages, um, they're not all doing it by the end of nineteen by, by nineteen sixty four, but. The, the difference is pretty profound, and, and certainly by the end of the 60s, they've pretty much all moved to this cash system. Um, or at the very least, when they do pay them in kind, it is then calculated as a cash equivalent. Um, and so sort of bringing the Korozniks into this cash economy is is another element of you know, what Khrushchev is trying to do. because. Ultimately, they believe that this is a better incentive than the kind of mix of out-and-out coercion and, you know, the exhortations of, you know, work harder so we can build socialism or whatever the case may be, or or we can support the war effort or, you know, depending on the time and place.
1: Well, you talk a lot about labor shortage and, um, you know, you talk mostly about sort of the push-pull of, you know, the cities versus... Uh, the countryside where you have better opportunities and stuff. but I'm sure the war absolutely devastated the working population. I mean just the the, the demographic losses means that you know any excess population they ever did have is already gone. So um, how does Khrushchev try and make up for the fact that you have these very serious labor shortages and you don't really have the mechanization to um, you know make up for it? I mean, you talk yeah. about the Komsomol in particular in students. Yeah, part
2: of, part of it is there, – there are several things. Part of it is to increase the mechanization to try to make up for it. Part of it is to try to slow the out-migration of people. Um, but also part of it is to try to kind of get the most out of the people that are there. So things like the Komsomol um, are – Um, an important element of this, but I think for for a long time people looked at the kind of mobilizational tactics that that this involved and assumed that that was the sum total of what Khrushchev was trying to do, that, you know, these are very much, these are the the kind of great campaigns that are very much in a Stalinist vein. This is the Virgin Lands campaign. We're going to mobilize 600,000 Komsomols and dump them out in Kazakhstan to start setting up these farms. You know, isn't this this great heroic undertaking? We're going to you know, praise them and all this propaganda. Um, and so there's an element of, of that, but it but it's also coupled with the, the increase of wages and other kind of material incentives and all of this kind of thing. Well, if um, I re- but the, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, if I remember correctly, though, you talk more about um, short term socialist competitions and particularly sending students on summer holiday or after graduation as a way to sort of instill work effort.
2: Yeah, so there is an element element of that, certainly. Um, this idea, the idea I think is is broadly um, an appeal to um, to youth as this kind of, um, the, the right word has escaped me here, but essentially as an anti-conservative kind of force, right? That, the, the idea of Khrushchev and, and his kind of advisors is that corn um, is a great idea, and the reason why it's not working as well as they hope is that there are these conservative forces in, you know, regional leadership and you know, kolkhoz chairman and these kinds of things that um, are kind of um, dragging their feet about it. They're kind of sabotaging the effort, and so the, the idea is to use you know the komsomol and these komsomol socialists competitions to kind of try to break through um, and so they they use the Komsomol hierarchy which um, sort of helpfully at this in this period is rapidly expanding its reach in rural areas um, in a way that it that it didn't extend into down to the level of, of farms and stuff as much uh, under Stalin well because there um, was and,
1: always comsomol but they didn't really do a whole lot.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and this, so this idea that that you know we can and and they did they set up these annual competitions and they you know, ran them regularly every year, um, and the kind of winning um, you know they're usually done by kind of work work team level kind of thing and then and then for regions as well, um, you know that you could win a prize and and there was you know a certain amount of prestige involved as well, um, and that you know these are Pretty large scale there are um, some instances where as much as half of the corn being grown um, in in a region um, in one particular case of countrywide um, is being done by these comsomol groups um, which are made up of typically of you know whatever Komsomol members are there but also any anyone of Komsomol age who's doing this work is kind of drafted into the into the team as well, um, and so it, it's very much in this kind of mobilizational. Um, you know, we'll encourage people to do this by, you know, telling them that they're working to build communism, offering them medals and trophies and these kinds of things. But there were also some some actual kind of material incentives. You could win you know a small cash prize, or um, you know, for young people growing up in a village somewhere. Winning um, uh, uh, some kind of consumer good could be a really big deal. You, you know, if you were really outstanding, you could win you know a radio set or uh, a pocket w- or a wristwatch or um, you know any number of, of these kinds of things, or win some kind of um, sort of bigger thing for your um, local comps organization, that kind of thing. So there there are kind of material um, incentives as well.
1: Well, and I got the impression a lot of students actually use this as sort of um, like a, a country holiday with their friends. You know, they did work in the fields, but they also went swimming. They flirted with girls or boys. <laughs> they got drunk together.
2: Um, yeah, there's there's a certain element of that, too. And I think these are, they're kind of parallel and related um, streams, but they are, I think, distinct. Um, you know, I document these kinds of uh, attempts to um, integrate this kind of work into the school program. And often, you know, this is then dealing with um, sort of school-aged kids up, up into high school, um, whereas the broader kind of com and mole... Effort could extend to people well into their twenties, right? And in, in this period, they're de- defining youth, quote unquote, comes small age people up to I believe age twenty seven. Um, whereas there are these kind of school groups which are um, operating on their own, distinct from the kind of rank and file members of the hojos, and yet, yeah, they're very much ingraining, trying to ingrain this idea of you know, doing an honest day's labor. Um, and you know, as 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 that that chapter in particular uh, documents, you know, sometimes they are, sometimes they are using it as as time to kind of um, you know be kids, um, to you know, fluff off work and go go swimming, or go get into various kinds of trouble. But the broad broad idea is that this is um, instilling a work ethic, and and, and as such. Um, very much ties into uh, Khrushchev's broader educational reforms of the late 50s in which he tried to um, kind of de-emphasize the kinds of um, classical kind of elements of, of the Stalinist education system where things were geared toward uh, formal book, you know classroom, with the idea that you were preparing students for higher education by forcing everyone including those who were headed for higher education into some kind of uh, manual labor for a certain defined period. Um, the idea that, that if you hadn't done this kind of manual labor you would be disconnected, you wouldn't appreciate um, you know, the importance of the socialist project or what it meant to be you know, sort of a member of this uh, society.
1: Well, I think this goes back to the old Bolshevik tradition of valuing people that come off the factory floor.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think Khrushchev is very much... Um, well, he did come off know, the factory floor. He's not that floor. generation, right? <laughs> I, I, that's literally what he did. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's an element of it, certainly. But, but by the same token, it's um, uh, representative of the profound changes in Soviet society in that You know, the '30s and '40s created um, this urban, technological, educated society in which um, you know engineers and doctors and professors are you know there's a profusion of all these kind of white collar careers, and now their kids are 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 coming of age, and there's this fear that they won't appreciate how you know what that means, right? Um, There's this fear that, you know, the son of a professor is going to expect to kind of waltz through and into higher education without ever really dirtying their hands, and that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it sort of reminded me of anti-millennial rants you hear from baby boomers now, in
2: some ways. Yeah, and you you sort of wonder, you know, perhaps there's something, I don't know, I I, I hate to speculate or even, you know, whether there is such a thing as human nature per se, but there does seem to be something kind of trans-historical about, older people, you know, shaking their fists and saying, kids these days,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> So what sort of problems did Khrushchev run into in the implementation of his corn policies? I mean, certainly we've talked about the lack of labor, but um, the lack of technology and manufacturing capabilities was something that compounded this lack of labor, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That
2: he is very... Um, that the technology is an important part of this. Yet I think this this really shows the limitations of the power of Khrushchev or any other individual leader to um, really force through some kind of of, um, program if it didn't have the buy-in of the bureaucracy. There are these instances where he goes to great lengths to um, sort of Put in a course correction to get the manufacturing uh, bureaucracies and stuff to start producing um, harvesters and tractors and you know sort of the appropriate stuff that they, the farms need, and they do it for a brief time, and then you know three years later they quietly go to the you know transition those factories to producing something else. Um, so you know they painstakingly build up production. Harvesters and tractors and things up through the end of the '50s, and then suddenly, for no real understandable reason, the production just falls off a cliff. <laughs> so they're 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 facing shortages of this machinery just at the time when Khrushchev is is really pushing um, corn planting to to new heights in the early '60s. Although, um, in
1: fairness to a lot of these people, if I recall, he did something like increase production norms from like a couple hundred to several thousand in a year and you're like you know even if they wanted to make this they don't have the resources or the the tool that factories to do this right
2: yeah yeah there's a certain element of sort of demanding demanding the impossible um, but then you know they kind of keep at it for a couple of years to the point where it, it, it becomes somewhat more expected um, and, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's indicative of uh, sort of a bigger set of problems um, with the way that this kind of broader economic management functions the above and beyond agriculture that, that is perhaps a little above my pay grade, but there are, you know, there's some scholarship out there on the ways that this works. And, and so there is a certain amount of, asking the impossible, but also then these kinds of, um, you know, problems with incentives, it's a lot easier to, um, you know, produce things that are, uh, you know, malfunctioning and but you do it quickly to meet your plan than it is to actually kind of create, you know, to manufacture stuff that works and, and, you know, all all the kind of documented problems.
1: Well, let's talk about that a bit—the intransigent bureaucracy. Because we mentioned it briefly with the Komsomol that they were supposed to sort of kickstart these older people moving, and this has certainly been a problem that goes back to you know, the Czarist period. Stalin deals with it. Um, the, the, the Russian bureaucracy just does not do change, does it?
2: Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm hesitant to make kind of grand pronouncements on that, because I think there's a danger in ascribing a certain kind of like ahistorical permanence to like, oh, Russians and bureaucracy. And yet there is a certain, you know, there there are certain continuities. And I think, you know, on some level it's, um, it is both a deep long running problem, but I think it's also worth, you know, pointing out that Khrushchev, uh, abandons repression on the level of the Stalin era, right no one sorry there's a helicopter going by outside if you and it's what it is um you know Stalin abandons this uh sorry excuse me Khrushchev abandons stalin's practice right if if you really managed to flub up your planned productions, you could end up in a labor camp or worse that kind of stuff just doesn't happen under Khrushchev for the most part. I mean, the worst that could happen is you get fired and you move on to some other job because there's such a shortage of people with any skills.
1: But honestly, of skills. Stalin killing bureaucrats didn't actually fix the problem. Right, no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it, it got <laughs> rid of that bureaucrat, but it didn't fix the brokenness it of the overall system.
2: Right, and so, you know, certainly not killing bureaucrats is, is not necessarily going to change it. and And so Khrushchev's response is, um, one of the things that's often, you know, sort of earns him the most derision is the like constant tinkering with the administrative apparatus. Um, you know, I think it's worth saying that that kind of there was a, a consensus among the the quote unquote collective leadership in the early years after Stalin's death that something needed to be done about this. That that these ministries, especially the the kinds of centralized ministries based in Moscow, you know. I I was always sort of perpetually amazed at the profusion of, you know, ministry of this kind of machine building and ministry of that kind of machine building and and the ways in which they um, became these kind of silos uh, and and, – you know, duplicated functions and, and all of these things that led to all kinds of inefficiencies. So the, the initial reorganizations that try to decentralize some of this stuff are certainly backed by Khrushchev, but not his idea alone. Um, and as they, you know, kind of muddle through the rest of the, the decades, certainly some of the, the reorganizations um, are Khrushchev's and are less popular, you know, again, his, his idea of splitting the party is, is um, sort of uh, the is kind of the peak of this. Um, but there's, there's always his, his attempt to, you know, <laughs> there's a certain amount of, of carrot and stick uh, efforts to uh, you know, force them to be more responsive, be more responsible um, for what it is that they're trying to do, and yet there is this kind of inertia that, that just seems to defy Um, defy whatever efforts
1: could you maybe explain the
2: scope
1: of that problem because I think for a lot of people who are not really into the profession you know you sort of expect that the leader gives the order and then stuff happens but that's really not how the Soviet system worked at all was it yeah it's
2: not how a lot of people imagined the system worked but but it doesn't take very long digging in the archives to realize that it's much more chaotic um, and in part, you know, this is the nature of any bureaucracy, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a game of telephone on some <laughs> level, right, in that, you know, you start off with a, a clearly formulated policy directive um, or objective and, and set of directives on how to achieve it. And then as this is sort of divided up into bits and pieces and, and, and sort of spread throughout the system, it, it loses its focus. But there's also, you know, all kinds of of um, problems that are peculiar to this time and place. And then, um, one, you have a, um, a profusion of kind of overlapping res- areas of responsibility. Right? One of the things that's happening under Khrushchev is that Khrushchev kind of leads a reassertion of the Communist Party as a uh, a vehicle for managing the economy, a role that it had had at various points in the past, but that it's that Stalin during the war and especially the post-war period had largely um, snuffed out. Right, you have this kind of balancing act between the role of the government and the role of the Communist Party, and it had tipped quite profoundly in the direction of the government up to 1953, and then there's this kind of counterbalancing that brings the party back in. And so um you know in theory the party and the government are supposed to work side by side at all levels the reality is much more chaotic. Um but there are also then just con- competing incentives, right? One of the things is that because everything at least in theory comes from Moscow and kind of filters down from the top there are often too many competing priorities for uh, a, a region and, a, and its leadership or a particular enterprise and its management to actually do everything and so they had to start kind of prior making you know choices about what to prioritize and what to deemphasize um, and so um, you know there's there's sort of an incentive to follow whatever you know follow the orders that seem like the most important and then kind of forget the rest um, there's a tendency right that's very well established under Stalin of the kind of, oh, this is, you know, this is the campaign for today. This is what we're focusing on now. It's, you know, increasing production of whatever, you know, commodity threefold in the next year or, you know, fulfilling the five-year plan in four years or whatever it is. And so to see any given policy initiative as a short-term campaign for show and then, you know, next week or next month or next year, we'll be on to something else and we can safely abandon that. And, and, and so there's a lot of evidence, you know, all of it kind of circumstantial, most of it circumstantial and, 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 and sort of um, fragmented, that this is essentially how most um, uh, officials in various ministries and local government and party organizations interpreted Khrushchev's um, agricultural policies, including corn, um, at the beginning especially, is, oh, this is, you know, this is a campaign for a year. We'll do this. It's a big kind of propaganda thing, and then we'll quietly drop it and move on to the next thing. Um, And and it took quite a while for Khrushchev to kind of convince them that he he meant business. Um, So... Yeah, it's a big, complicated problem. And and the fact of the matter is, is that no Soviet leader ever solved this problem. This is, these are the problems, you know, having evolved over the decades. These are some of the same problems that that, um, are facing Gorbachev when he comes to office 20 years later
1: in the 80s. Well, let's go beyond these problems of just sort of chaos and, you know, Into the actual like working against Khrushchev because there was some of that, and you particularly talk Mm -hmm. about sort of the falsification of data and uh, people actually directly ignoring or countermanding his orders. And let's let's start with the falsification of data, and in particular the case you mentioned in Riazan, because that is absolutely fascinating how much they lie.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the 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 Riazan scandal is is a pretty well known one. It's it's commonly Sort of part of the story in the literature of, of the Khrushchev period, um, in which uh, the party boss of, of Ryazan, which is this kind of agricultural region um, south of Moscow, south east of Moscow, um, you know, in one year they, they increase, I believe it's one year in 58, they increase milk production like 200%. Um, or maybe that's in 59. And then the following year, they are going to fulfill their um, meat procurement plan three times, I believe. Um, and this becomes just kind of the, the propaganda circus, right? Every, everything in Pravda and all the newspapers is all about the heroic efforts of the Riazanos to, um, you know, to to help raise living standards and compete with the U.S. Right? This is the era of overtake and, and catch up to and surpass the United States um, in these areas of production. Um, and what they're really doing is you know, scouring the countryside and buying up every animal they can find. They're going to neighboring regions and buying up every animal they can find. Um, they're instances of, um, and, and so they, they go through and they basically give every person like a quota of however much they're supposed to, to come up with. And if they don't have a cow to slaughter or something, they, you know, there are people who go and buy meat in the shop and then go back and turn it in as their own production. And, you know, all these kinds of crazy um, counterproductive schemes to create this appearance. And, um, you know, this is set up as a model and so others then, in turn, have to kind of promise the impossible and somehow deliver. Um, and so, you know, in a way, the Rizan story is kind of known. And one of the things I want to show in um, this is the final chapter of the book is that and this is happening, you know, at, to varying degrees on varying scales throughout the country. And that corn kind of plays a, a small role in this, in that Um, If you're going to claim that you've increased your farm's uh, production of of beef threefold in a year, you also have to, in theory, quote-unquote, have raised the crops to feed them. And so they're inflating their corn harvests as well. Um, Within a year or two, all of this fraud and and deceit becomes too – the evidence of it becomes sort of too, too prominent, too obvious to ignore. There's a series of scandals. Um, Larianov, the the party leader, in R- Riazan actually committed suicide. So, having been sort of feted as this um, you know, sort of leader who's living out the very best of, you know, who's creating the the, the kind of agricultural revolution that Khrushchev is craving, um, he ends up um, disgraced and, well, and this deeply damages Khrushchev's credibility as well.
1: If I recall, I don't know that it was your book. It may have been one of your footnotes that I tracked down. Uh, I do believe he actually had a huge funeral, though, that he was well-liked, that people were actually very sad that he died. And this was set in contrast to a similar scandal in Kirov, where the party boss was actually a jerk, a horrible, horrible, nasty human being, and people were more than happy to throw him under the bus. (laughs) Um, So, you know, some of these people who did bad things were still actually liked and respected did
2: and that that kind of taps into um, you know some of the work that um, Alek Klevnuk and and others have done about sort of trying to uh, develop kind of a, a classification system for these different um, uh, kind of regional party organizations. So some of them, you know, kind of have these these real tight knit um, kind of organizations, and so they're able to basically conspire to do these various, you know, to do this this kind of fraud and stuff, and they have enough trust in each other to keep it hidden to some greater or lesser degree. And then there are other models that are much more conflicted or you know, a party boss who doesn't have the power to kind of enforce this like the, like the guy in Kirov. Well, and this has
1: um, been a problem for quite some time. I mean, I, I look at stuff like flax campaigns in the 1930s, and they were doing things like going around and stealing the flax out of people's blankets to
2: meet the quotas. <laughs> <laughs> it does not surprise me, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest.
1: But it, I think it, it points out that the system is very broken in that the quotas tend to be the main focus. No one really cares how you get there. And that once you have these massively inflated quotas, you have no idea how to govern because none of the data you're trying to govern the country with is actually real.
2: Right, right, exactly. Um, and so it, 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 and, and there's a kind of a chicken or the egg problem here. It, it, it's so tightly bound together, you don't know, um, you know they don't quite have any way to um, kind of get out of that cycle in a way and this is the the kind of immovable object that Khrushchev keeps running into with all of these um, bureaucratic reorganizations and, and attempts to you know, browbeat, shame, incentivize, whatever else he can into getting them to, to, to work effectively and efficiently, um, because no one really knows what what that looks like, because you know, they've you know, existed in this, this kind of system for so long.
1: Well, you also talk about, in particular, in... Um, the Baltic republics, Lithuania, people actually countermanning or directly ignoring Khrushchev's orders, possibly in part because the Baltics were a recent addition to the USSR and they weren't super happy about it. But what exactly yeah. was going on there?
2: Um, so the, the story in Lithuania is slightly different in that uh, rather than sort of claim, making sort of outlandish claims to how much they were producing, it was about crop rotations and, and what they were planning, Khrushchev kept badgering them to plant more corn, and and the uh, um, sort of experts in agronomy said, you know, well, no, this, this isn't going to work. We should be doing sort of our traditional uh, approach of, of pastures and all this stuff. Um, and so the political leadership, up to and including the, the first secretary, essentially form a a conspiracy um, to basically falsify all the documentation that says oh yeah we've, we've planted it we've plowed up all these pastures we're planting corn we're um, you know doing yeah you know, we, we've taken the, the kritika from from Khrushchev and we're we're, we're implementing the changes now um, and they just kind of keep stringing them along this way for several years and then when once Khrushchev falls um, you know, there are these brief moments where the, the kind of mask falls and the party leader kind of gleefully claims, see we didn't we, we fooled them. You know, we pulled the wool over their eyes. And, and my argument here is that, you know, in a way this, this fits into the same the same kind of model of, of what's happening in a place like Riazan in terms of you know having a, a local organization that is fairly tight knit and is able to um kind of control what information gets out. Um, but that it's actually successful, right? Eventually, Riazan sort of breaks down. People start writing letters to, to Moscow, to Khrushchev, saying, whoa, there's something very wrong here. Whereas in Lithuania, as best, uh, you know, it's, it, it's fairly clear that, that Khrushchev kind of figures out something is up, but no one ever um, sort of lays it bare, and they get away with it. Um, and, and my suggestion is that there's an added element of kind of national pride or national identity um, tied up in this, that um, you know, the the leader of the Lithuanian Republic is Lithuanian, and a good chunk of the party hierarchy is as well, and so they have this kind of extra element of solidarity that that helps them keep it quiet. So they um, they cut out, broadly speaking, in this period. I mean, places like the Baltic republics, the first secretary is a member of the titular the titular nationality a Lithuanian in this case, and then the second secretary will be a Russian. And they seem to have basically just kind of cut him out um, and you know, sort of kept up a front um, to keep him in the dark. Um, and it, I think it, it, it sort of um, raises this same question about you know, to, to what degree can we really see the Soviet Union as governed from Moscow? Uh, Moscow sets formal policies, but in the end, the regions are often so far and have enough kind of leeway to strike out on their own to greater or lesser degrees as circumstances dictate.
1: So would you say Khrushchev's corn policies are the object failure that most historians think they are? Were they fairly successful?
2: Um, (laughs) Somewhere in between. Um, you know, that successful is, is probably a bridge too far. Um, but I think it's telling that, that when Khrushchev falls in 1964, it's not as if corn goes away. Um, Soviet uh, farms continue to plant it, and, and without the kind of pressure from above to do so, um, all of the kind of propaganda and all of the agitation that goes around it, which is immense, I I can't, I don't think I can quite convey how much of this is just sort of pouring out all the time in in posters and newspapers and magazines and journals and Khrushchev's speeches, which are endless. And cartoons Um, of singing corn? And cartoons of singing corn and, yeah, everything. Um, All that dries up instantly. And yet, um, you know, the amount of corn that Soviet farms are planting stabilizes at a level that's lower than the peak under Khrushchev, but, um, you know, five or six or seven times higher than it was prior to Khrushchev. So clearly, um, something has changed. Um, you know, they're, they're planting on the order of 20 million hectares of corn um, per year, which is a lot. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a s- relatively small fraction of the total area, but much more than was the case uh, 10 years before the end of the Stalin era. Um, and so, basically, it's it, it it works on small scales in certain areas um, where the conditions are right, where they you know the farms have the labor, the technology, the knowledge to kind of do what needs to be done, and are willing to do it. And all those things don't come together very often, but when they do, they actually achieve some successes. And so the the problem is always that there's a kind of a confirmation bias and that um, Khrushchev kind of uses these to then browbeat everyone else that says, well, you know, you're, the farm next door to yours has corn yields that are three times as high. What are you doing wrong? Now, what may be the case is, you know, an absence of the right labor supply, the right machines, the right seeds, whatever it is, um, and that often kind of gets lost but there are enough successes in enough places to make it kind of work <laughs> um and that you know that, that that basically what keeps it from being what Khrushchev hopes is is a very complicated and complex set of causes rather than one or two simple ones and for a long time um the kind of consensus among scholars and and certainly the popular consensus was was a very simple one it's this is an unfamiliar crop. It's unsuited to the climate, you know, open and shut. Um, and what I what I want to show is that climate and unfamiliarity account for some part of this. Um, but what we really have is a much more complicated and interesting story about bureaucracy, technology, uh, reform, and 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 responses to reform and, and sort of dragging feet, um, but that there are also significant successes that are, you know, if not down to corn precisely, are part of this larger program that Khrushchev is, is after, this idea of industrial agriculture that, you know, by the end of his 10 years, Soviet agriculture looks profoundly different in terms of the technologies they're using, uh, not just machines, but, but things like accounting and the wage labor and the application of genetics um, and, and agronomy and all these things that, while they weren't totally absent in 1953, were so sparse on the ground that, that, um, that the, the changes that Khrushchev made make a significant difference, even if it never lives up to his very, very ambitious uh, expectations.
1: Well, thank you for your time and your interview. I think we've probably taken pretty much a lot of your time. Um, <laughs> just one last question. Is there anything that you're working on now that you'd like to tell us about, uh, a next project, or are you taking a
2: break? Um, I've had something kind of simmering uh, on the back back burner um, to um, kind of pick up some of the threads of, of this project, but to... Um, move in a couple of of new directions. Um, So one of the um, sort of moments of of the 1970s in the era of détente that that is fairly well known is that that the Soviet Union starts to uh, import uh, grain on a large scale. Um, Basically, what they're doing is this is the era when they're beginning to make significant uh, earnings of hard currency, exporting petroleum oil and nat- mostly natural gas, um, and to try to bridge the gap left by lagging Soviet agricultural productivity, they go to the U.S., to Canada, um, elsewhere, and start buying up grain on a pretty large scale um, beginning, kind of at the height of detente, 72, 73. Um, and on the one hand, this is denounced by critics and anti-communists in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, as, as the quote-unquote "Great Grain Robbery," um, this idea that this is grain that's being subsidized by, again, in the American case, the American taxpayer, and then being sold off at cut-rate prices to the to the Soviet Union um, to keep them afloat, um, and so oops, sorry about that, um, and so basically, the project that I I, I want to do is kind of use this as an entree into understanding. So, Union is um, how they are, how the leaders are understanding food and agriculture, and it and it, it intersects with uh, with uh, oil and gas in some really interesting ways. So, the the origin of this is I um, started digging in the files about these grain deals, and in the papers of the Ministry of Agriculture, there are these folders with you know. Side by side in, the, in, the, in the, the folders are documents about these negotiate, you know, negotiations around buying grain. And then there are all of these Western oil company executives popping up, and they're saying, you know, you have these massive oil reserves. Um, we, you know, and they're Americans in many cases. You know, in the U.S., where we've kind of reached our peak oil production and we're worried about energy. Um, we want to help you secure loans and we'll provide the equipment. We want to you know, help you exploit and export this oil and natural gas. And so there's this like, kind of nexus of um, – and, and the other side of this, of course, is that food production, grain production under a system of industrial agriculture like you find in the U.S. and Canada is a wash and a seal of of, of petroleum. It's – in the fuel for tractors, it's in the pesticides and, and other chemicals that go into this, it's in the energy that goes into producing the fertilizer, it's it's everywhere, um, and so there's this kind of uh, link between the two that I think um, is really worth exploring for the ways that it, it sees the Soviet Union in a global light and hopefully sheds light both on the larger global situation but also um, so on the
1: it does sound interesting well thank you for your time and doing this interview it's been great having you
2: thank you for having me this has been-